again, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast. And today we are going to honor the careers of four men who recently passed away, four professional wrestlers who had varying degrees of success in the territory, but make no mistake, all four at one point or another certainly made a difference. I'm talking about Brickhouse Brown, Jim Jameson, Jim Neidhart, and Chris Champion. That's right, Scott. Not only will we be talking about some of those wrestlers' most famous moments in Memphis, but we will also revisit, yes, once again, the Mill Moskowitz Monday Night Mystery, and we'll hear a little bit about the feedback you received from many different sources about the last episode of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. Yes, and you know, Brian, it's sort of funny. Before we go any further, I do want to address the Mill Moskowitz situation because I think a lot of people are under the impression of how much it means to me to be right about this. Um, that's not, that's not what I'm after here to me, wrestling journalism and, you know, whether it be a podcast or a book, the ones that are entertaining are the ones that are really trying to go after the truth. And a lot of times that's a very difficult task. Uh, you and I have discussed this before uh, because the business was so shrouded uh, by kayfabe, wonderfully so, for so many years. It's very hard because you've got different wrestlers remembering things, uh, their own version of how it went. Uh, and and they, I've had it explained to me by Dutch Mantel, Jerry Lawler, and Jerry Jarrett. You know, they're on the road, uh, you know, five to seven days a week. It's all going by in a blur. They're constantly trying to come up with you know, new finishes, uh, trying to be as innovative as possible because they basically went to the same towns every single week. So for them to remember the specifics of one particular night or another, it can be a very hard task uh, without a little prodding. And when I first started talking about this situation, uh, the night of January 29th, 1979, and the way it ended... Uh, which was not only recalled by me, uh, but also by uh, Memphis historian Mark James, who saw the same clip that I did on Jack Eaton's Tuesday newscast. Uh, I think Big Jack is another guy we've talked about. Uh, he used to announce wrestling back in the days of Sputnik Monroe and Billy Wicks. Um, and he became the, the newscaster best known for calling Memphis State football games and Memphis State basketball. But because the, the wrestling show was so popular... And it was such a ratings draw. He would begin his pod, not his podcast, but his newscast every Tuesday afternoon at 530 with a clip from the main event and deliver it in his typical deadpan style. And it was just some classic stuff. And I wish there was more of this footage out there. Uh, there's some available on YouTube, but it's very hard to find. So. Uh, a lot of people were not taping these, but they did show a clip of the main event where Mill goes for the – or somebody wearing a Mill Maskers outfit that looks exactly like the one that he traditionally wore that appeared on so many covers of the Aftermax where he goes for a flying body press on Lawler. Lawler moves out of the way. There's not a pinfall. They just because the idea of the match is like it goes until somebody's carried out on a stretcher and they Lawler and Fargo immediately put the boots to Mascaris's ribs and he's hauled out on the on the stretcher. And then Fargo goes down and, you know, turns the stretcher over, continues to put the boots to him. And the masked man has to kind of crawl to the back with Austin Idol licking their wounds. And I guess, you know, the, that's the thing that people have a hard time accepting, not only the fact that Mil Mascaris were teal, but also that he was so cooperative on this night. And if you stop and think about it, a lot of people are going, well, from what I've read, you know, what I've read in 
you know, Dave Meltzer's newsletter or what I've seen uh, on YouTube. You know, he's not very cooperative. Uh, Jim Cornette had trouble with him when they were doing a Clash of Champions in Texas. Uh, and he, he didn't give Cactus Jack much. Cactus Jack ripped him in his in his book, uh, Have a Nice Day. Chris Jericho has written about how the guy was just an egotist and wouldn't give him anything in a match. But what you have to understand, and this is what I talked about recently with Jerry Jarrett. I talked with him twice uh, about my meeting with Mill Maskers, which was sort of upended by the fact that I ended up taping a little bit of it because I figured that no one would accept my word as face value because I think everybody thinks I want to be right about this, but that's actually not the case. I'm just looking for the truth. Now, would it be <laughs> would it be fantastic if it truly were Aaron Rodriguez on this night in question? Yeah. I mean, it would make me feel good because that's what drew me into the show to begin with. That was my ticket to go to the matches that Monday night because I had all these wrestling magazines that my dad had bought me and Mil Mascaris was on the cover of most of them. And I just find it shocking that so many fans have made up their mind based on their experiences on basically what they've read some other wrestlers say without really understanding the time. And, you know, Brian, one thing that uh, you noted, the importance of relationships in the business at that time. And I think that's one thing that we've really gotten some insight from Jerry Jarrett about that time period. Uh, what are your impressions? We talked about it a little bit on, on the show last time. You've had some time to reflect on it. Are you, how do you feel about it? Do you think that that was truly male maskers on the night? It's really hard because it is so preposterous. <laughs> And the main people involved say it was him. The, the Let's put it this way. The main people involved either say it was him or don't remember anything. Right. It's one or the other. Austin Idol says it was him. Jerry Jarrett says it was him. Mil Moskris doesn't say it wasn't him. And I say it that way because, I and I said this a little bit last week, you gave him lots of opportunities to say, no, that was not me. That's ridiculous. Yeah. But instead, he agreed with you, but he also sounded like he would have agreed with you about anything. For instance. Talk to me about any subject not having to do with wrestling right now. Ask me a question. <laughs> uh, wow. You know, I was really, yes, uh, yes. So, 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 oh, I was, uh, yes, but when John McCain passed yes. away and now, oh, and, yes, I know and, lots of people and, that have passed and, away, but and Trump, Trump basically Trump. Ran, him th ran him through the mud. I've been the in lots of mud. I've been in mud everywhere. <laughs> that That's what it was. He yeah. wasn't saying no, but I couldn't tell if he was actually saying, yes, I remember this. Or if he was just, of course I was there. If you would have said any town, anywhere in this country, he would have said, yeah, of course, I'm Mil Moscaris. The egotist, as Chris Jericho called him in his book, according to you. Yeah. The egotist, he wouldn't say no. He couldn't turn down the idea that he was in every single town everywhere. But with that <laughs> said, he didn't say no. He said the opposite. He said yes. So that's now three of the components of this. Jerry Jarrett, Austin Idol, Mil Moscaris all say yes. Jerry Lawler says he has no idea. Bill Dundee, yep. was it the same thing? He had no idea? No idea. Jim Cornette wasn't there. He says the idea of it's ridiculous. And again, it is. It's a ridiculous idea. Yeah. And and actually, Jerry Calhoun, who I'm fairly sure refereed that night, has no memory of it at all. Uh, but again, it all of that, it's, it's not particularly shocking. And I think part of it, and this is what Jerry Jarrett and I, and he did not say this. I, I I said it, and I was laughing because I was going by his reaction. 
he he said, now, he goes, explain to me again how Mill responded. And I said, he just, he was, he was laughing and he couldn't understand the big deal. And I said, that's what people are having a hard time with. I said, I inadvertently probably hurt my case by, by having the audio because he's so flippant about it. And he's just like, well, yeah, of course I worked Memphis and yeah, yeah I did that. And so I also worked all these territories. And I think he goes, he goes, well, to me, that makes sense. And I said, why? And he said, well, he, he said, you, you would have to understand the year, uh, 1979. You'd have to understand wrestling in 77, 78. Mill Maskers was sort of a touring attraction. And I don't remember exactly where he was going, but I know that he had a date the night before. And you and I have checked on this. He was in Houston uh, working with his brother Dos against the Funk Brothers. And then the next night he was in Memphis. And I brought up Syria. I said, so it would have been easy for him to catch like an easy flight to Memphis. He goes, fly. He goes, no. He, I guarantee you he was traveling by car and he was going somewhere. Um, and I remember, cause I remember Salvador calling me and he said, Hey, you know, you told me when you were visiting that you would love to have Mill Maskers on a card. Well, he's passing through Memphis and he's got an open date. What, you know, would you be interested? And he goes, yes. And of course I would. And so <laughs> Jared, who has no dog in this fight, is just amused by it because he goes, and I, he was talking, he's like, hey, so you have to understand, there's no Bill after. This is not the uh, a, a high-profile match that's going to air on network television in Japan. This is not Madison Square Garden. It's the photos, though. And the fact that we have no photographic evidence is interesting because the photos would be very powerful in Japan, almost as powerful as any video footage. Think of Bruiser Brody. Think of any of the guys that became big stars in Japan for that generation. They didn't want any photos or any video anywhere of them taking a pinfall or them losing, let alone them taking a stretcher job out and getting beaten up by Jackie Fargo. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, though. There, there are, As far as I can tell, there are no photos of that evening. And Jared was trying to hammer home that point. He goes, Bill Lafter was not there because I don't think we had anybody taking photos. And if you look at the programs from that time period, unfortunately, long gone were the days of Scott Teal, who uh, put out his brilliant newsletter, which had all of the stars of the era who came through and where it was a sort of it, it was positioned to look like Lawler beat the top 10 contenders in the NWA. Like I ran across some pictures that he took recently of Mr. Wrestling 2. Uh, they're only about in the territory. They also wrestled in Atlanta a few times, which I did not know about, including a, a chain match, which I would absolutely give just about anything to see uh, because the brawling between the two, I thought, was fantastic. Um, and also, uh, Till's program also confirmed that Lawler indeed go on the air before the match and reveal his identity. <laughs> that it was Johnny Walker who had previously wrestled in the area and that Lawler was not necessarily going in to beat him on Monday night, but to expose him as the, uh, I believe they called him the rubber man, Johnny Walker, uh, a mid-car wrestler who had seen his best day. And so you have, to, and, and again, that's a, that's the thing that's very unique to Memphis. Where else did anybody get away with revealing Mr. Wrestling 2's identity beforehand? You can't think of it, can well, you? <laughs> no, I mean, beforehand, no. No, I can't think of it. Well, did, did anybody ever on the air 
uh, hint that they actually knew who it was. I mean, I know Austin Idol would joke that he was an ex-con, which was just hilarious, and that's why he was hiding behind the mask. But did anybody actually ever reveal that it was Johnny Walker? I don't think so. And, the, and but it happened in Memphis, and so Memphis was you know very unique. And Jared also goes, he goes, you have to understand too. I doubt very seriously that. Neil really knew where Memphis was. I guarantee you he had to pull out a map and find it. You know, we were not on his radar. We were not in, you know, we were not part of his typical routine. Now, again, it's almost adding to the mystery in a, in a wonderful yet frustrating kind of way, because I've, I was pouring through uh, Clawmaster's results online and I was sort of I was trying to trace his movements in the days following Memphis. There are none. It's like he just disappears. You have like some dates early in January, and then you have the, the 28th uh, result from Houston, and then the night in Memphis, and then just nothing for like weeks. Um, I can't find him in Atlanta. I can't put him in Louisiana. Uh, I can't put him like maybe heading north to New York. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things that just sort of adds to the mystery, unfortunately. Yeah, and he wouldn't have really been going into Florida or Atlanta, I don't think. He was obviously he was a regular in Japan. Obviously he would go in and out of Mexico, New York in seventy nine. I'm not sure what his schedule was there, but it wasn't like there were that many places he could have been going in wrestling. Well, and the next dates that I can find on him after Memphis in nineteen seventy nine, uh he's in a tournament in Mexico. So I I have no idea where he went uh during that time period because he would have just Returned from Japan, if I'm correct, because uh, the tag team tournament would have been in December. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and Jared also says, he goes, you know, he's laughing because he doesn't understand why this is such a big deal to you. Like the fact that he was working heel or that he lost a match or that he put some local guys over big with really, he, he told Mill beforehand that he would not show it on Memphis TV. He did not. I've heard conflicting reports that the finish aired uh, in Lexington, and so the only news, ca the only cameras that were there, I think, were actually from the Channel Five broadcast team. Uh, and I don't think they filmed the entire match, but I think they just filmed that snippet because they filmed the finish to every Monday night match. So there's there's about five minutes of footage that could possibly be out there, and that would certainly clear it up. Unfortunately, you know, when I saw it, I was eight years old. I mean, the guy, you know, looked like the real deal to me, but I, I can't say for sure. Uh, Mark James, uh, same deal. I, I think he was probably nine years old. So we both remember it, but uh, can't say for sure that it was him. By the way, Mil Moskris did not compete in the December 1978 Real World <laughs> Tag Team Tournament in okay. Japan. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And, and basically, when I when I uh, when I was talking to Jared about, it, I said, Jerry. So basically the problem is Cornette, myself, everybody, we're looking at this like a bunch of marks, basically, because we don't get like, you know, why he would do this incredible favor. And he goes, I guarantee you, he probably did this before. And it was sort of under the radar, you know, where the, where the deal, where there would be no photographer at ringside, where the promoter would assure him that he would not show it on the television program. He probably did this before. This was probably not that unique. Now, 
off the top of my head, I can't think of anything else that like this. I don't recall anyone else coming forward and claiming this. But is it is that out of the realm of possibility? Certainly not. And uh, if he was so sure that there would be no photos and very little uh, people would see it on the Channel 5 broadcast, um, would he care? Uh, I don't know. Uh, and again, a big part of this, too, and you can't discount this, the relationship between not only Jarrett and Luderoff, but also Mascaris and Luderoff. It's too bad Luderoff isn't here to say something on his behalf. Yeah, I mean, that would certainly, certainly Perhaps clear it up. Perhaps you call his son-in-law, Paco Alonso, <laughs> down in Mexico City and see if they have Sal's old record books. Well, I am kind of curious because at some point we are going to have Jeff Jarrett on the show again. And I didn't ask him last night because the timing, it just didn't feel right. But absolutely, Jeff and Neil actually formed a tag team and won the world-class belts in 88. And I'm just curious, was there ever any conversation, you know, was maybe Jeff at the matches that night uh, and and remembered it and brought it up to Neil? And did he recall working for Jared in Memphis? But I also want to say this. There was zero chance that conversation. I, d- I doubt zero. it. But hey. When, when, hey, when I finished interviewing him, you go, I can't believe you didn't ask him about Mill Maskers. <laughs> Even though I mean, I'm not expecting a great revelation, but I'm just wondering if if there if, if there's any recollection at all, because he only appeared in the territory once, I somebody's gotta remember something. If it was him or not, I mean that's all I'm trying to figure out. I don't I would prefer it, yeah, if it were him. But really, what I want is the truth. That's what we're after. Because to me, that's when wrestling journalism is entertaining. When you've come close, as close as you possibly can, to finding the truth. And that's all I'm after here. Um, Now, certainly, that wasn't all that I talked about with Jerry Jarrett. I mentioned this before. Without any prodding from me whatsoever, he was talking about his philosophy on what made a wrestling promotion successful back then. And he was saying how it all had to work together, uh, you know, from the guys who, uh, you know, from, Miss, from Mr. Coffee and his wife selling the gimmicks, uh, from the, the kids selling programs, from, you know, the guy who put up the ring. He, he cited Paul Morton, the longtime referee, the father of Ricky Morton of the Rock and Roll Express, who he said was not late once with the ring. And he goes, I know that sounds kind of insignificant to some people, but it meant a lot to me that I didn't have to worry about somebody coming up with an excuse like, Oh, the truck broke down or something happened and the ring's not going to be there. I depended on Paul and he always came through for me. And he goes, and I, and I don't know if I ever let him truly know. And now he's gone and I can't do anything about it. And then he said, what's, the guy, you'll know his full name. I'm, I know it was Jameson, his last name, the enhancement talent. And I said, yeah, uh, Jim Jameson. He goes, yes, he did such a great job. And I remember that we, when somebody would debut, I would always put them, try to put them in with Jameson first. Or if it were a really big angle, I would always try to make sure that, that, that if it involved a uh, a heel getting heat on a, on a, he goes, and he goes, I, ha- I hate to use the word, jo- you know, the words job man, because I think it's so condescending. I always look at them as enhancement talent. He goes, and I don't know if Jim ever knew this, but to me, he was just as important as Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee to the success of Memphis wrestling in the early eighties. And not only did I mention that on the show, uh, but on 
that Monday morning, uh, or Tuesday, it was a Tuesday morning because I talked to, to Jarrett on, uh, on Monday evening. I, uh, I texted Jim and I said, hey, can you give me a call? I, w- I want to talk to you about something because I've been sort of in contact with Jim ever since we did the show on the last sellout, which, again, they, they needed a jobber team to, to beat up and manhandle for uh jeff's son or jerry's son jeff to uh to intervene you know he was refereeing and the heels you know are beating down the jobbers and then they beat down jeff and then in comes jerry well jim jameson was at the center of that along uh with uh david johnson (laughs) david johnson which is I almost forgot his last name. Then I remembered that he was trying to do these aerial maneuvers and he was grounded by a nut shot by, uh, by Bill Dundee (laughs) (laughs) as if to say, cut that shit out. But, uh, and I asked Jim, he goes, I said, what, uh, what was the feeling like when you got to TV? And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, this is like, this led to the last sellout at the Coliseum. And this is a big angle of Jerry Jarrett said, he goes, none of us had any idea of what was going to happen. And even Jeff, when we were talking about it, he goes, you know, today that angle probably wouldn't work because it would be overproduced. People would think about it too much beforehand and it would be watered down instead of what it truly was, which was really raw emotion on the part of uh, not only uh, Jerry Lawler, who they bring back from a suspension, but also Eddie Marlin, uh, Jeff's grandfather, who's uh, his voice is cracking. He just lets himself get caught up in the moment and the result is brilliant TV. But even the key man uh, in this, Jameson, who's who's you know selling his ass off, taking this this beating, and it was pretty stiff that day from from Dundee and Landell. He said, "I had no idea that Jerry Jarrett was going to run in and make the save." Because I was absolutely blown away. And for a moment, because it just kept going and going, I had a thought: maybe I should get up and throw a punch. He goes, "I'm so glad I didn't, because I might have gotten in Jerry's way." Um, but when I and when I shared this news with him, he uh, he goes he's like man I guess that is that is really something, you know to to have the owner of the territory. I mean, did I man maybe I, maybe I really did make a difference. I said, oh yeah, Jim, you, you absolutely did. I mean, think of all the guys who you helped get over. I mean, dude, you were you were a key part of that. And for Jerry Jerk to to single you out, man, that's really cool. And we ended up texting about three or four days in a row. And he's like, man, I, he's, I still can't just, I can't get over that. I said, I know Jim. And the thing is, you know, I, I, I know you're sick, but he doesn't know you're sick. You know, it didn't take any prodding on my part. He brought you up. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, we, we, we lost Jim, as we mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, and I have to say that I, unlike his, um, his performances on Memphis TV, I didn't know how bad he was sick. You know, he refused to let his his illness uh, get the better of him to his friends and family. He refused to put it over and was very brave. And maybe in a way, that's why Jerry Jarrett's words meant so much to him. Uh, I don't even know if, if he was aware that he wouldn't be with us much longer. I think he I think he probably did. But I think that's a testament to this is one tough guy. And a guy who deserves to be remembered because I think he was the longest running enhancement talent that I can recall from the glory days of Memphis wrestling in the early 80s into the mid 80s. Whenever I think of his name, I think of this one promo. And it was Bill Dundee and Dutch Mantell right before Bill and Buddy got together when it was still Bill and Dutch who were really great together. And 
they're going to copy the old Garrett Morris weekend update on Saturday Night Live bit of for the hearing impaired. They're going to have a special message. So Bill Dundee talks casually and then Dutch cups his mouth and yells it out jokingly (laughs) for the hearing impaired. And what Bill Dundee says very calm, he goes, Jim Jameson. And then Dutch, Jim Jameson, (laughs) I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you, Jameson. And I always think of that, Jim Jameson. I'm going to kill you. And by the way, I try to get away with saying I'm going to kill you on a wrestling show oh, today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually, that actually that comes up a little bit uh, in, in a clip that we're going to share about Chris Champion, who came into the territory, uh, I believe, in the summer of 1989. Uh, and what, really quickly, I want to say, uh, Chibi came in with uh, with Mark Starr, uh, who I believe was that, that was his real brother, his correct? His brother. Yes, correct. Yeah. Uh, and they came in as the wild side. Uh, Meltzer re- remarked in his newsletter, and I, I could be speaking out of turn. I don't think, I don't think the name was lifted necessarily from the Terry Funk Western show. Yeah, I saw that too, and I don't think I'd ever heard that before. And I, I didn't check the timing to see when Terry Funk's Western was out, but that's the first I had heard of that as well. Yeah, I think it had more to do with the song that they came out to, the Motley Crue song, <laughs> Take a Walk on the West. And I think the whole gimmick was sort of be because the song, uh, if you <laughs> actually look this up, this is Motley Crue's The Wild Side. Kneel down, ye sinners, to streetwise religion. Greed's been crowned the new king. Hollywood dream teens. Yesterday's trash queens save the blessings for the fallen ring. Amen. Wild side. And so it's a song about fallen angels, I guess. And if you stop and thinking about their garb and everything, I think that's more likely the inspiration for the team rather than the short lived Terry Funk Western that got killed in the ratings. I could be wrong, but I'm not sure. But even when, uh, you know, Chris Champion comes out and he had been attacked by, by Lawler viciously, which is if you want to see how to get a guy over, has just having absolutely no heart and is just the lowest of the low. Look at some of Lawler's 89 stuff. It's it's sometimes it's overlooked because the territory itself was down. There was not a lot of depth to the cards. Uh, and that's why when Chris Champion and his brother appeared, man, it really bolstered the tag team ranks. And they had a great little feud with the Rock and Roll Express. They were doing a lot of moves that you'd see a lot of Japan guys doing. I, I really thought that they were fantastic. And this deal that he does with Lawler, he comes. it's just really raw stuff. I don't think there was like a lot of thought put into it. And and Chris is actually kind of selling the head injuries. He goes, he goes you know, Dave, um, I, I could have been killed last week. When Lawler, you know, he powdered me in the ring and then he powdered me uh, on the floor. And then and then he forgets this part. And Dave goes, well, yeah. And he also remember he put the chair on you and kept jumping up and down. And I'm like, wow, Dave, just poured a little salt to the wound there. And he goes, exactly, Dave. I again, I he could have killed me. And, and Dave goes, well, <laughs> it always made Dave nervous when somebody either, you know, threatened to be killed or, you know, because what if. Chris Champion has a you know brain aneurysm or something like that, and then passes away the next day. All thoughts are going to be like, "Oh, Jerry Lawler killed him with that stuff." Because uh, one time, downtown Bruno, when I was coming out with poems or allegedly written by his wife, he on the air, <laughs> and again, I heard Brady Hills give him this line. He's like, "You know, look into the camera and say you're going to kill Scott Bowden." <laughs> And Dave was so furious. Oh my gosh, when that uh, when that actually. Aired. But that's one of the great things of live Memphis television, folks. 
And that's just one of the clips that you're going to hear on today's episode of Kentucky Fried Wrestling as we look back at the unfortunate passings of these four men, but we also remember their best moments on Memphis TV. And on that note, we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Brickhouse Brown. Here comes Chris Champion. Lawler is gone, thank goodness. Eddie ran him out of here. Well, it's not a good place. It's a mess out here. Not a good place for an interview. Maybe right over here. We can make it work. Chris, watch your step here. With uh, the neck hurt, Lawler jumped him, and uh, you're under a doctor's care, I know, and got, got a couple of compressed vertebrae and a concussion, I understand. Yeah, it's a mess out here, and I'm a real mess too, Dave. I'm not going to come out here and cry and... I mean, I've been I've been beat up before. I've been in a lot of fights, and I've had I've been beat up before, but I've never ever in my life have I ever been beaten to the extent that Jerry Lawler came out here and did last week. The man tried to kill me. Is what he tried to do? He tried to kill me. Because I've been in fights before, Dave, and I can I can handle myself. But he called me from behind. He pile drive me. He DDT'd me. He DDT'd me in the ring. He put me in the pole. I was I was gone. I mean. Put that desk on top of you, jumped up and down on it? Jumped up and down, I mean, I was out, Dave. You all probably saw it better than I am. The doctors, you know, they, they, they won't release me to wrestle. I want to wrestle. It's just got everything to keep me out of that ring, but the doctors tell me if I go in there and wrestle, and if I take a blow to my head, I, I, could, I could be killed. Yeah, you, you just, you're going to have to take time. Let me tell you, Lawler, when the doctor releases me, I don't care if it's in a parking lot. I don't care if it's at the mall, at a 7-Eleven, wherever I see you, I'm going to get you, Lawler, because you're not going to try to kill me. It's gone beyond wrestling. And now it's personal. It's a man trying to, trying to kill me. Now, come on. I think we've got enough trouble out of you. Chris is just out here saying that he's under doctor's care. He can't wrestle. Uh, he, if he goes back in the ring, he'd be injured, but he'll be looking for you when he gets well. Now, let's leave him alone and, and leave it at that. Well, let me just say this. Let me let me understand this right, Chris. No, come on. That's okay. Hey, look, I respect the doctor's here, the doctor's orders. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. No, let me just, no, let me just say this. Hey, first of all, you said after last week you had to go to the doctor. Is that right? Yeah. And he said, what, you got a concussion? Compressed vertebrae and a concussion. Yeah. Compressed vertebrae and a concussion. Well, let me tell you something, Chris. I think you ought to change doctors because he can't be right. You know why? Because you've got to have a brain to have a concussion. And, pal, that leaves you out. You understand what I'm saying? You ain't got no brain, so you can't have no concussion. Now, the doctor also tell you that if you were to get hit on your head, it might be fatal. Is that what he says? Yeah. He says if he gets hit on his head, he might be fatal. Well, let me tell you something, Chris. You're safe, brother, because I certainly don't want the death of Chris Champion on my hands. But what you should keep in mind is you shouldn't come to a wrestling program where people are going to be hitting other people because you might get hit by accident. You might get hit some kind of way. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, I wouldn't want to hit you on top of your head with my fist, but how about if I slap your face like that? Come on. <laughs> For heaven's sake, haven't you done enough damage to the man? Hey, can we get some help out here for Chris, please? Oh, come on, Lawler. 
champion again being beaten up by Jerry Lawler. Chris was out here last week. He wasn't trying to pick a fight with Lawler. He was just trying to help some poor kid who Lawler was beaten up on. And as a result, he got that uh, Lawler trying to take the neck brace off of him. Uh, he's got it. He's just about got it. He does have it off. Come on! You've heard him enough! Hey, putting him in the ring is not going to make what you're doing right here. again being beaten up by Jerry Lawler and he really can't defend himself too much after what Lawler's done to him here comes Jerry Calhoun yeah stop that Lawler trying to pile driver Jerry Lawler Jerry Lawler you pile drive that man and you'll never wrestle in that ring again again I'll tell you that right now you pile drive him you'll spill Lawler You'll fire from the SWA. You'll never wrestle around here again. Thank you, Eddie. Yeah, let's, let's see if we can get Chris out of here now. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we. I don't think you want Lawler to help him out of there. Got that chair again. Yeah, come on, Eddie. Jerry Lawler now walks across Chris Champion. Great move. Lawler attacking Champion for the second week in a row. Now he steps across that neck after removing... The next race a few minutes ago. Now Eddie's got the chair, and maybe this will get it stopped. Eddie wants some more help. If anybody's watching a monitor back in the dressing room, we need some more help in here. Yeah, Eddie, keep Lawler away from him, and, and there goes Jerry Calhoun looking for some help, too. Let's get some people, and let's get Chris out of here before Lawler hurts him even more. Here we go. A bunch of folks showing up. that neck but why don't you just pick him up and carry him out of here get him out of the area Eddie look out behind you back here boy champion is just totally out of it watch for Lawler here Okay, don't put a hand on it. All right, there he goes. I hope you're satisfied. Oh, oh, oh look out, look out, look out, Eddie. Look out. 
tell you. So, first of all, quit playing music when I'm out here talking. Hey, that's why they're playing music. Here's Chris Champion. Oh, boy. Chris, uh, on the crutches, still got the brace on the neck after not once, but twice, you jump on him out here oh. in the studio. Like one of Jerry's kids hobbling up here. Hey, Chris, let me just say something to you, first of all. Was anybody else hurt in that wreck? <laughs> Can you speak? Or do you got, you Jerry, you got, you got brain damage, too, huh? I came out here two weeks ago to give the people a doctor's report, and when you found out that a blow to my head will kill me, well, that's exactly what you did. You came out here and hit me in the head and just... Oh, no, 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 no. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I did not hit you on your head because obviously if I had them, you'd be pushing up daisies right now, but you're not, are you? Yeah. So I didn't hit you. All I did was slap you. And I thought I'd teach you a little lesson. You would think, you would think that a person that had a neck brace on and out here on crutches would have more sense than to come out here and try to get in my face. Didn't the doctors tell you not to come around me anymore until they gave you a release? Didn't they tell you that? Yeah. Did yeah. they? Yeah, the doctors told me not to come up, not to show around wrestling until I had a doctor's excuse, my friend. That's right, Jim. <laughs> Doctor told me don't show up until he had a doctor's excuse. I told you when I showed up, I told you, my friend, me and you were going to fight. Oh, Chris. Champion with a little payback here for Lawler, who jumped him from behind and then got him again when he was hurt. And now Champion says he's got the doctor's release. Lawler rolled into the ring by Champion, got that other crutch, and oh, breaks it over his back. DDT'd by Chris Champion. Lawler rolls out of the ring. Trying to get out. Champion after him with that, uh, what's left of that crutch. Mm. And there goes Lawler. There's Champion. Champion. Boy. Chris? I told you, Jay. I told you, when the doctors released me, it was going to be a fight. And that's what it's going to be. It ain't going to be no wrestling match. We ain't going to have no rules. We're going to fight Wild Bang Style. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And again, that was a fantastic clip of the interaction between Jerry the King Lawler when Lawler was really doing some fantastic heel stuff in Memphis uh, in late 89 and into 1990. Uh, and it just sort of recalled the glory days for me of the heel Jerry Lawler doing interviews with Dave and Lance uh, in 1979 and in 1977. Just some fantastic stuff there. And again, it was the rawest I've ever seen Chris Champion, and it was also the best that I ever saw Chris Champion on Memphis television, other than the fact that he did curse on live TV. Yeah. <laughs> one time as part of an angle with the dirty white boy and the dirty white girl. I think it was one of those deals where that they also done in Continental, right? With uh, Right. They did it with Tom Pritchard in Continental where the dirty white girl wanted to talk to Tom. This time she came out to talk to Chris Champion, <laughs> and Chris Champion plays it so differently than Tom Pritchard did. He goes, 
What's what? That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> right to Dave Brown. Right. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? I mean, uh, that you know, saying that on the air. Okay, that's one thing. Can you imagine if they had gone all the way with it and done what they did in Continental? Holy oh moly. Wow. That was a pretty uh, – I think it won the Wrestling Observer Angle of the Year, but it was also – it was beyond – it was it, it was hardcore, I guess, for the time. Um, isn't that where, they, where he hung Tom? Yes, he hung Tom from the ring post, and then he had – a blood capsule, I believe a condom full oh. of blood in his mouth. So then blood starts coming out of the side of his mouth to really get over the fact that he could be dead at any moment. Right. Of course. Uh, but again, that's just a perfect example too of, of, of not only the, the kind of the Southern territory vibe and just how far they would take an angle and, and to get a guy over. Uh, I also want to, want to briefly mention that as I was going through some Jim Jameson clips, I came across that angle that he did with, uh, with Hector Guerrero, it was sort of underrated, really, in that uh, in that little run that he had with Doctor D, where they they basically <laughs> they played around with the AWA World Tag Team Titles a little bit. It was probably Vern Gagne's worst fear that if he ever gave any of Jarrett's guys the World Tag Team Titles, or God forbid, the AWA World Heavyweight Championship that was held by Nick Bockwinkle for so many years, that this is exactly what they would do. They would kind of have a phony, uh, uh, non-sanctioned title change. And I think this was solely done because when Lawler and Dundee captured the tag titles, they actually captured the tag title belt uh, because uh, Boris Zukov, who was part of the tag team with Soldat Ustinov, had jumped to go to Vince as part of the Bolsheviks tag team. So they were man short. It actually probably made the match better by having Doug Summers fill in. But again, they only had one of the tag belts. I think they wanted to do it in grand fashion and also say that Lawler and Dundee were two-time holders of the AWA World Tag Team Championships. Uh, and they did a little quick switch with Dr. D and Hector Guerrero. And Guerrero comes out and cuts this great heel promo. I mean, who knew all these years when he barely said a word on Memphis television that he had all this charisma that you would later see in Eddie Guerrero. Uh, he was actually really funny and he had his hair cream and he's in there with Jim Jameson and poor Jim. You know, again, this is a perfect example of how Jim would do anything that was asked of him. Uh, he puts, you know, he takes the cream and he, and it's supposedly supposed to be blazing hot and he runs from the ring. And when he, when he comes back from a commercial break, I guess Lawler had been back there and shaves a part of Jim's head and poor Jim has to come out with, uh, with this big gap. Uh, and maybe it was a little bit of payback from Lawler over Jim going and working as Percy Cornett and taking the head shaving. <laughs> which Jim called some heat for when he returned to Memphis, because I guess uh, Booker Bill Dundee did not run it past Jerry Lawler, has promised beforehand. But uh, Lawler comes out to get his hands on the hair cream. Lawler pulls a gun <laughs> and aims it at Guerrero, <laughs> and the silly stream comes out. But it's enough to get uh, Guerrero to drop the hair cream, and Lawler picks it up. And Lawler's still got the gun in his head, and he's just laughing his head off. And I'm like, going, wow. So not only do you have Hector Guerrero and Dr. D out there wearing the AWA World Tag Team title belts, if Vern saw this episode and his champions are being threatened with a gun <laughs> on live television, <laughs> I can only imagine we probably would have lost Vern Gagne up much, much sooner than we actually did. And, and you should probably specify Dr. D is not Dr. D. David <laughs> Schultz. No, no. And that was sort of, and I think Lawler even teased, he goes, I don't, you know, he's in there, you know, he's bringing the, this guy, Dr. D. I don't know. It could be Dr. D. David Schultz. They were actually teasing it and it was just this big muscle bound uh, steroid dude. 
dude. Uh, Carl Stiles. Who, who had a glass eye. That was like, one, didn't they do a, a, a gimmick spot with that? A few places where he, you know, the heel actually ripped his eye out or something like that. But uh, yeah, so it was indeed not David Schultz. But again, one of the many, many memorable moments of live Memphis television that I find it very hard to believe they cleared with Dave Brown at a time. <laughs> Dave looked like he was about to uh, to have a heart attack right there as well. So uh Brings us to a great moment with Brickhouse Brown. And this is Lance Russell at some of his best from the very opening of this segment where Brickhouse Brown, who had turned heel. Unfortunately, the heel turn is a little uh, it's 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 no, it's not a little. It's a lot rushed. Suddenly, without any kind of warning whatsoever or any kind of explanation, Brickhouse Brown has returned to the area. He's sort of a mid guy, mid, mid card guy before. And he returns as a referee and he turns heel and it's just so out of, it comes out of nowhere. It comes off very rushed, but the key to this and what makes it so memorable is the transformation because Brickhouse is one of those guys. He rarely got interview time. And if he did, it was nothing that would indicate any kind of charisma. I can only assume because I, I was around Brickhouse during my run that somebody noticed how funny he could be backstage. And they was like, man, we've got to get this guy out. Instead of him trying to come out like, you know, trying slapping hands with the fans and trying to be something he's not, let's 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 see the backstage brick house who's cracking people up with all his jokes and stuff. And he comes out and he's just like a totally different guy. Uh complete transformation. And he's they're basically they're trying to recreate the first family. And it's basically brick house just, you know, coming up with all these catchphrases before really catchphrases got popular. He would say stuff like, Jerry Lawler, I'm going to open up my can of whoop butt. And by Monday at Bartlett High School, so many people were using that expression and threatening to open up their can of whoop butt. Uh, and he was doing other loggers. Exactly. And they're saying, you know, he's saying stuff like Jerry Lawler, just like a Hershey bar tastes so sweet. I'm going to kick you with both my feet. (laughs) And it was just all this hilarious stuff that you had no idea was inside Brickhouse that you finally got to see in this video clip that we're about to play. And it's, and it's, and it's, you look at it, some of the, some of the talent involved, uh, Pat Tanaka, the Lord of the ring, uh, <laughs> Which, uh, for those of you who have not listened to the latest 605 Super Podcast, the worst piece of journalism, <laughs> not just wrestling, the, the article just happens to be about wrestling. It's the worst piece of journalism that goes on. Clearly, no fact checkers on the staff at this place. And I honestly, when I'm, you know, I'm hearing you read it, I'm just cracking up. And then I go to, and find it online. It still has not been taken down. <laughs> no, it's still I mean, there in all of its glory. I mean, how is that possible? I mean, and I have to think that Tanaka was, you know, some of it clearly was ego. Some of the stuff he was saying and trying to get himself over. I think he was honestly trying to go, I'm just going to see how much shit I can spew out without this reporter speaking up and going, hey, wait a minute. So you think it, it was more thought out than I do. I think some reporter went up to him and just held a mic there and he didn't put any thought into it. So how much money did you make for WrestleMania? Oh, a million a day. And you know, then it goes in the article. He made a million dollars a day for WrestleMania. Well, the part where you would think 
they might speak up and go, wait a minute. You started training to be a pro wrestler when you were three years old. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. You were making millions of dollars when you were a teenager? Well, well I think it was just hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes, if that's I'm not, right. Yeah. After high school is when he signed his first million-dollar contract. Oh, my Lord. And, and I love – you kind of mentioned that there's like two or three paragraphs where he he's so humble when he talks about how he – could not excel in baseball and football. He loved those sports, but he just wasn't any good. <laughs> yeah. I knew we were going to talk about some wrestlers that passed away. I didn't know we were just going to bury everyone this week here on the show. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Look, hey, I'm just saying. I know I love Pat Tanaka in Memphis. And he was great uh, in Memphis. Yeah, yeah. He, he, and that was the that was the birth, I believe, of the team being called Bad Company. I think so. And although contrary. Although, did the band Bad Company ever play them to the ring, as Pat Tanaka claimed in Lord of the Ring, the article about him? Well, I can damn sure tell you that it never happened in Memphis. Uh, But I I will say, though, I saw them take on the Nasty Boys. I believe it was on the same card as Lawler's first challenge of Kurt Hennig, which was a damn good bout marred by... An awful finish that unfortunately involved Brickhouse Brown because they were trying to get Brickhouse not only as over as a new Jimmy Hart, but also has, I guess, a sly version uh, or maybe an African-American version of a young Jerry Lawler because he's the prince. Right. And it's sort of a riff on Prince's name, I would have to have to assume. And they were trying to say that he's he's going to be one step ahead of Lawler, that he's just as crafty as Lawler, because they do this deal where and I was there that night because the AWA world title still meant something to me. I clearly recognize Kurt Hennig as one of the top wrestlers in the world at that time. And it was the very first match. It sort of reinvigorated the chase of the AWA world championship. About 7,500 fans were there, which is above uh, average at that point. Uh, and again, paying higher ticket prices, I believe it was one of Wahoo McDaniel's uh, only appearances in Memphis. I think he also came during one of the TV tapings that they did with World Class. Uh, but the the energy inside the building that night was fantastic. And when when Bad Company come out to their music and then the Nasty Boys come out to Janet Jackson, I mean, there was electricity in the air. And it was really cool to see. It was almost like the the glory days of the tag team division were were being reignited at that moment because so many great tag teams came through Memphis. Uh, and I, I just thought I thought Bad Company was fantastic and highly underrated and really wasted in in WWF with uh, with Paul Diamond going under the mask as the Orient Express alongside Tanaka, where they, I guess they made that million dollar payday. Well, that was the second version of the Orient Express. There's a good chance that Sato. Akio Sato, uh, he may have taken the million dollar payday and flown back to Japan. Well, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe part of a Pearl Harbor job uh, on Pat to, poor Pat Tanaka. And wow, poor, I, poor and taste. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm making fun of the longtime Gorilla Monsoon line. Oh, Pearl Jar, poor Harbor job here. Uh, back in the days when wrestling wasn't so PC, I'm not arguing for a return to those days necessarily. But uh, this episode is a real pure sixer. <laughs> Uh, there's no question about it. Batten down the hatches. But where are we going next? <laughs> well, why don't we play the uh, the clip of the unlikely leader of the New Hill faction in Memphis, the Black Prince himself, Brickhouse Brown.
across the way there. Look. Oh, no. Coming out. Led by downtown Bruno. Properly a place the throne. What is all of this? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Like it is, Lance. Did you drop your crying towel because you had that bum out here crying all over your suit? I know that's right. Yeah. Let well, you, you noticed your name was right there uh, hey, on baby, that hit list. They talk about Jesus. Let me tell you something. My name is on everybody's lips right now. I am, without a doubt, the Prince of the Commission. And you're looking at right now the most devastating entourage in professional wrestling headed by mine. I know, with a new attire, hey. and I notice all of your... Uh, uh, cohorts gathered around. We looking good, only as we should. Well, uh, we saw the commission born last week. What hey, new this week? And first of all, I don't need you to introduce my fellow members of the commission, okay? Let me handle this. Right now, this is His Majesty's court. I'm conducting a court session right here to introduce all my guys, and I don't need you for that, all right? Yeah. First of all, I want to introduce... A very good friend of mine. Well, do you want me to take the microphone and just let you sit here and talk by yourself? Thank you. That would work much better, Lance. I appreciate that. You're learning. Maybe you can keep your job now. I haven't decided yet. First of all, I'd like to introduce a very good friend of mine. His loyalty was proven here last week on television. And I'd like to introduce the people to my good friend, Bruno. Yeah, I love the That's attire right. that Bruno was in right He's here. the court jester uh, yeah, he of the sure commission. Is. And secondly, I don't need to introduce to you people these devastating guys. They are the most awesome tag team in professional wrestling. You know who I'm talking about. That's right. Bad company, baby. Paul Diamond and Pat Tanaka. Bad to the bone. You're going to be hearing a lot from Bad Company. They're the new Southern Tag Team Champion, soon to be World Tag Team Champions. Keep your eye open, baby, because I'm going to tell you something right now. They are awesome. Yeah, we yeah. remember, too, how they yeah. got started, uh-huh. They're doing a little bounty hunting, the Judases of Tag Team. All right, Les, you're interrupting. Okay. Thirdly, a legend in his own time. The singing cowboy. Oh, no. Don Bass. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, he's coming out with a new album called Listen to Don Bass Imitate Bobby Bear pretty soon. I know about that album. Anybody put the name to a dotted line, get in that ring with me. I'm going to kick them all over the ring. I'm the people's champion from now on. No closet champions in this entourage, baby. These are fighting champions right here. Anybody want a piece of the cake, baby? Put your name on the dotted line, but you got to negotiate with me. And let me tell you something right now. You know, since I rose to power, I got to admit one thing, Dunny. I'm a little bit scared, brother. I'm not scared of any man's lace on a pair of boots or a pair of wrestling tights, but I'm scared of the politics. Because I know that Eddie Marlin and that skinny twerp Randy Hill are scheming, conspiring to get rid of me. But let me tell you something. You got to do a lot of thinking. Because I'm too far intelligent for the likes of both of you. That's right. And to protect me from anybody, I went and talked to my main man. Ooh, 
Skywalker. I'm telling you, gigantic bohemoth. My man, Goliath. He's going to be my protector from here on out. And if anybody put a hand on me, they got to go through Goliath first. And let me tell you something right now. That's no easy task. Let me, let me tell you people something, you dirtbags. Let me tell you, if there's six men out there that think they can take me, they got a new thing coming to them. Because I am the man they got to go through to get to the prince. Well, if that's the way it is, that may be the way it is. They're probably lining up right now. Okay, now, for all you ignoramuses up there at the studio controlling the music, when I give you the signal, you make sure that you get the music loud and clear so the people can all get with it and welcome this guy down. Be quiet when I'm talking to you. Shut up when a man is talking to you. All of you should be on your knees and you didn't rise up when I came in. Now, music please. I like a soundtrack from a movie coming up today. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce to you the king of professional wrestling, King Paul Fergie. What is all of this, King Paul Fergie? You are looking grand. You are looking so grand. This is the real king, not some imitation like that Jerry Lawler. Let me say, can I tell them the real story of what's yeah. going on here? Go ahead and do it, Black Can man. I tell you? Go ahead and do it. Okay, first of all, there was a royal family that came over to the United States, okay? These two sisters, one kept it in the family and married royalty. The other, well, maybe construction worker or something, but... It wasn't in the blue blood, right? It wasn't the blue blood family. Common people. And these two guys, they grew up. This man has always known he's royalty. The Fergie name. That's right. The Fergie name. Look at it right here. Right in People's Magazine. <laughs> you can read all you want to know. Yeah, if you read the article, Black Prince, it talks about the Fergies a little unsavory in some of the things that the people have done with that Fergie name. Hey, it's probably talking. just some biased, prejudiced journalist just like yourself that printed it. But anyway, this man realized his royalty and the other guy, I, I must not mention his name. What's his name? Lawler? Lawler or something. <laughs> yeah. He comes out with his plastic crown, which I took, I gave it back to him because I thought it was worth something. I took it to the pawn shop, man. I couldn't get nothing for it. So I gave it back to him. But then again, he wanted to be a royal family so bad, he got himself a crown and a cape, and he calls himself the king of wrestling. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Talking about imitations, look what you got. A, you got a singing cowboy that can't sing. You got an imitation king out there. Who's talking about imitations? You see, Lance Russell, that's expected. You see, Lance Russell, you just like all these other peasants out here. You don't have any sense. You don't know that you're seeing history being made right now. You should really sit up and take notice and stand that attention while we're out here. That's what you should do. And from here on out, when we come out to the ring, you people should stand up and show the respect that we deserve. So now, moving on, because I know it's going to rock your socks. 
I done pulled the coop of the wrestling world with only my intelligence can do, baby. I'm showing sure up bad. That's up. Bad to the bone. But you know what I did? Yeah. I got the one, the only true superstar of professional oh, wrestling. No, I don't believe that. Come All on. All right. Crank it up. Yes, sir. Give me some music right now. Something fell down. That's his heart. Time. Nimble. Nimble. And he was quick. Hey. Yeah. Look at it. Keep that music playing, baby. Yeah, yeah. I feel so good. I think I wanna put you with it, baby. Now I see what he bought with these five thousand dollars he got. Look at that outfit. and stand up, be cool, okay? Because you're going to be hearing some great things coming from the commission. And let me tell you something. The one, the only true star of professional wrestling right here. Have you ever seen 400 pounds of soul in one package? Have you ever seen anything like it before? This man has got more rhythm than anything I've ever seen. And I boogie with the best of them, baby. And let me tell you something right now, Bubba. You will go all the way to the top if you listen to me. You have shown a degree of intelligence by signing with the commission along with the king of professional wrestling, my protector, and bad to the bone, bad company, and the singing cowboy, the new southern champion, John the Man Bass. And let me tell you something, you tell the people what I've done for you. I tell you, brother, do not adjust the vertical hole. What you see before you is reality, color, beauty. Let me tell you, my man here, the black prince, he doesn't make any shallow promises that he can't hold. Not like some people, like the powers that be, like Eddie Marlin, Randy Hales. What those boys did for me was just hold me back, keep me down. They didn't give me any title matches. They didn't give me nothing. All they gave me was a hard time and a lot of shallow promises. But within one week, the prince here, he's already got me a singing contract because of the beautiful voice I have. And because of my superior dancing abilities. A tryout with the Rockettes, something never before happened in history. So brother, let me tell you, people will come from near and far just to get a glimpse and just to see the superstar. You my right, brother? Yes, uh, I told you, people, all over the world, they call me the mailman. Because, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> when I tell you I'm going to do something, I deliver. Hey, uh, you didn't tell him about the $5,000 that he gave you and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just party. Let the party begin, baby. Let's just. Well, let me get the microphone. <laughs> Come on now, hey. You know, they may change the 
the name of your outfit from uh, the commission to the circus, because that's what it looks like going out there. <laughs> what do you think? A bunch of guys uh, who largely you believe in that? Yeah. Uh, let's take time out. We're going to be back in a minute. Uh. And that was the late, great Brickhouse Brown uh, establishing this incredible Hill faction in Memphis to sort of bring back the glory days of the first family. Again, with varying degrees of success, uh, the card after this, uh, I think two, two or three weeks later, uh, after the establishment of the commission, the Wrestling Fans International comes to town. And I believe that Lawler was not even going to actually work that show, but because the association was going to be there. He comes up with this price is right angle that is very memorable with, uh, with, uh, with brick house and the singing cowboy Don Bass, which is one of the most hilarious things I've ever seen on Memphis TV where they try to get out, get over Don Bass jokingly as, uh, as the singer of these great country hits to explain his absence. Like he's been in Nashville recording and clearly it was Jerry Jarrett's neighbor, Bobby bear, uh, actually singing. I believe the first song that they did was drop kick me Jesus through the goalpost of life, which is one of those great country lines that only a country singer. Hold on. Say the name of that song one more time, please. Drop kick me Jesus through the goalpost of life. (laughs) Right. To me, that's to me that's right up there with the with the country song. If I told you that you had a beautiful body, would you hold it against me? <laughs> <laughs> oh my word! Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> speaking of Jerry Jarrett, when I had him on the phone, and I always enjoy talking to uh, to Jerry, uh, I brought up the fact that uh, Jim Neidhart also recently passed away and I asked uh, his memories of Jim and he's like, well, I, you know, he came to us from mid South. Right. And I said, yeah, he was actually part of that infamous trade deal that sent uh, the rock and roll express uh, and the midnight express who had been Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condry, who had been working as single wrestlers in Memphis uh, along with Jim Cornette. And it was Jim's uh, first big break where he was given a chance to give him, given the opportunity to shine and and talk and be the lead hill manager for a change as opposed to being Jimmy Hart's understudy in Memphis. Although right away, you could tell that, in my opinion, Jim tries to downplay his first interview. But from the very start, I, I thought that, you know, he was really good. And, you know, even before I really understood necessarily what a heel manager was supposed to be, there was no question early on that he had the potential to be a true wrestling personality more than capable of handling the heel side of things and being the lead heel manager in a territory like Mid-South, uh, especially one that was so deeped in kayfabe and realism and just the perfect uh, antagonist for Bill Watts uh, for coming out of retirement and showing this punk who's boss and putting him in his place. I just thought it was fantastic stuff. Um, but again, we were talking about Nightheart and he goes, man, he, he was one of the better just natural athletes that you're ever going to see in the ring. And he wasn't given a lot of mic time. Uh, he was paired with, I believe, Butch Reed at the time. Uh, they may have even held the tag belts for a short period of time. But you're not going to get a lot of tag time because so much was centered around Butch Reed at that time. Um, and I don't think he had a chance to really shine. 
And again, I don't know if it was a matter of not only seeing him work uh, on Mid-South TV, because Jarrett and Lawler made the trip there, I believe, in either uh, late November of 1983, or maybe it was uh, early December. The, the episode ended up airing on December 17th, I believe, according to the WWE Network, which airs the show. But you have some Memphis talent, like Coco Ware, who I assume is getting to try out. Uh, also, King Carl Fergie, who actually did get a job as a referee. Uh, I thought it puzzling that they put King Carl Fergie, which was the gimmick that he started developing uh, later on with Brickhouse Brown. This is the first time you ever got to see him really doing that gimmick since he tried to do it uh, as part of Cornette's team in 1980. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Georgia Championship Wrestling Superstars. Uh, why you would have Jerry Lawler debut, Jerry the King Lawler debut, with the same episode that you're going to have King Coral Fergie on there, I don't know. But uh, but apparently Coco did not uh, impress enough to get a run with Bill Watts at that time. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have said, well, it's kind of one-sided, that trade, because Jarrett got uh, Larry Hoss Higgins, who worked Lawler uh, on that episode, and again, maybe he just saw some raw talent. He was certainly had a lot of size, but he was in the territory for a few weeks and then left. But also, it's this is, again, a, t- a testament to Jerry Jarrett's eye for talent. There is nothing that I can see that gives you any indication that Rick Rude is going to be a force in pro wrestling, let alone one of the best heel interviews, because he's an enhancement talent. Uh, yeah, he's got a great physique, but you don't see anything of it. And I remember... Uh, Jarrett told me, he said, you know, I, I was able to sit down with Rude, who seemed really apprehensive about the character that he should project. And I asked him, I said, Rick, how proud of you or, uh, or of this physique? And he goes, I guess well, I've worked my ass off to get it. He goes, so when you walk around, how do you, you know, you walk out with your chest out, don't you? And he goes, yeah. He goes, and so when you go into a bar or you know, guys are there with their girlfriend. Are they looking at you? And he goes, well, of course they are. And he goes, do that. He goes, and I just saw Rick Rude, all this apprehension, all this built up to, it just melted away because he understood at least finally what it takes to be a heel personality. Basically, Rude just turned up the volume. You know, I think that's, I think Jim Cornette is the first guy I heard explain it that way. I just took my real personality and turned the volume up on it. And that's exactly what Rick Rude did. And I can only assume because they played up Jim Neidhart's legit athlete credentials so much. That was also, you know, a big part of getting over with Bill Watson Mid-South. You know, he loved to push pro, uh, former pro football players or college football players or guys who I believe, uh, through the uh, shot put and Jim was a little bit of both of that. Actually, I think he had more notoriety in the shot put than he did in, uh, in football. Is that, is that correct? I heard if the Russians hadn't boycotted the Olympics, he would have won the goal. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Kerry Von Erich. I apologize. <laughs> Thank you once again for destroying my credibility, Brian Last. Uh, but again, <laughs> that's, uh, that's just one of the, the, the things. I think Jerry Jarrett sat down with him and said, hey, you're a stud athlete. Go out there and act like it. Talk about it. Talk about how you were with the Dallas Cowboys. Talk about how you were with the Oakland Raiders and how that makes you better than any of the other athletes here. Uh, he didn't have a, a lot of specific memories of Jim, but I certainly do because I was there. This was, again, Jim was getting a huge push, and this, this was going to lead to his only, well, actually, one of two main events that he had at the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis as a key guy uh, because he was further along on the mic at that point than Rick Rude. 
and he and Rude were sort of paired up. Uh, and, and again, on the surface, it looks like an odd combination, but you got this stud athlete who's going to go, hey, I'm tougher than all these wrestlers. And then you got this guy waltzing in, uh, kind of ripping off the Fabulous Ones gimmick, coming out in tuxedo tails at first, and this really ill-advised dance that Rick Rude would do that was quickly dropped. <laughs> More of a preening thing than uh, imposing than than a than a than a dance, uh, but uh, rude. It or not rude, but Nightheart interfered, and in every like I think three straight main events that resulted in DQ finishes, which is outrageous even for Memphis at the time. And I was just, oh man, I wanted to murder the guy. He interfered in a match with uh with uh, Austin Idol, uh, the new fabulous ones, Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert. And also Lawler was trying to get the Southern Heavyweight Championship back from the very first Lord Humongous, which would later turn out to be my football coach at Bartlett High School. And uh, he did not appreciate me unmasking him and, and threatening to run an article in the school newspaper about his accomplishments. Are you talking about <laughs> Jeff Van Camp? No, I'm talking about Mike Stark. Oh, Mike Stark. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Former Memphis State football player, Mike the Mule Stark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, in my experiences, that guy lived up to his experiences because he was a true jackass in every sense of the word. <laughs> I remember, dude, my knee, I took a wicked hit in football practice and my knee had swollen up like a grapefruit. I mean, it was just, I was in so much pain and we had, in those days you had, uh, you had to work out for like an hour and a half after football practice. You, I mean, you were so mentally and physically spent after, and this was like early in the season, September in Memphis can be brutal. And I just went up to him and I didn't say that I wasn't going to work out, but I said, coach, he, I mean, look at my knee. I just, I, is there any way that I can skip <laughs> the leg workout today? And he goes, God damn it, Mountain. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. Why don't you go put on your favorite dress? Go down to the country club. <laughs> 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 so I sheshayed out of there and put on my favorite dress. And- <laughs> Obviously, you're working on your TV gimmick years before you got on air. Yeah. <laughs> the rich kid at the country club, the, the oh. nice side of town. Oh my gosh! Yeah, Boy, but this really is a wrestling town, huh? You go to school, you have a wrestler as your coach. You get in a cab, you have Nate the Rat driving you around. You go to exactly. a restaurant, Randy Hale seats you. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh! All these local celebrities, and then you have me working at FedEx. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be so like I remember when I switched. When I switched, no. When I when I although I did wear a diaper once, but it was. I, what? <laughs> yeah, where I had to wrestle Miss Texas. Oh, oh that's the, right. I thought you yeah. meant at FedEx. Okay. No, 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 no. But it was uh, Halloween but, or something. But I worked the night shift for for about a year and a half, and then by the time I broke in and did my heel turn, I was still working there. But I had switched to the Saturday shift, and my manager knew how much the wrestling deal meant to me, so he let me come in whenever I got done with wrestling. And so they would be <laughs> the guys would be in the break room watching me do all this crazy stuff and take fireballs from Lawler and get pal driven and hit with a chair and all this kind of stuff. And then 30 minutes later, I'd be <laughs> coming into work. Hey, guys. it was completely absurd. I, uh, I, I have to say, this is easily the best tribute to Jim Neidhart I have heard. <laughs> where I'm just getting, where I'm just getting myself over. <laughs> but, but actually Neidhart, it was one of those great angles that was, uh, just abruptly dropped, and I'm not going to say it was one of the most memorable Memphis angles of the time, but it was one of those things where you have to kind of wonder what were they, what were they thinking, and where where were they going to go with it when uh, Nightheart took over the first family and called it Nightheart's Raiders. I guess they were really trying to play up that 
whole Raiders thing where he actually yeah. raided the stable of Jimmy Hart and signed away all his wrestlers. It was it was almost like they were going to turn Hart babyface for the summer or something like that. Uh, and then just all of a sudden, I don't know if it was, if it was because Neidhart gave his notice or what the deal was, but Neidhart uh, main evented against Austin Idol. That was his first main event at the Mid-South Coliseum. Uh, that was uh, because he had interfered in all the matches the week before, and Idols happened to be one of them. And also... Uh, he may have been alongside the uh, Rick Rude and gosh, the animal, which is one of those guys who I about. <laughs> you remember who that, remember that guy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we just had it was just like a, it looked like a jobber wearing face paint. <laughs> yep, exactly. Or he, the guy could have been a school teacher. He had like a beard, I think, and or a taxi just, driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was definitely not George the Animal. I can I can assure you. So that trio headlines against. Lawler, and this was the first time that they brought back Stan Lane and Steve Kern as the fabulous ones. Uh, and this is before they turned to Eddie Gilbert heel. So you had two factions of fabulous ones appearing uh, on the same show, which was uh, a little awkward. But at this point, they had stopped calling Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert the new fabulous ones. And they're just going by their names. And they didn't make any difference. They still didn't get over. And I still kind of wonder what the fan reaction would have been. I know they would have sided with Stan and Steve. Would a feud between the Fabulous Ones and the Fabulous Ones, would that have taken off? I think they really could have done some interesting things with Jackie Fargo kind of in the middle of it uh, because they had really gone out of their way to bury Stan and Steve when they left as deserters going off to New York City and Chicago and all these towns where you know they don't care about you. Uh, and I think that was a big point behind Jarrett ultimately going – with Gilbert and Rich because you had two Tennessee boys. Uh, I know that they had talked about Brian Adidas, who was, I, I guess, very close because he had actually, did he already have the tights with the lightning bolt? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Ready to go? Because then suddenly he starts wearing those on world class around that time, I guess when the gig fell through. And he even had a tuxedo jacket that he was wearing as part of his new heel persona. So I can only assume that that's where that came from. Uh, a little-known fact, Scott. Actually, I'm not sure if you knew about this, but the reason for the Jimmy Hart aborted babyface turn was because so much money had already been invested in the upcoming promotion of Wimpbusters. <laughs> they were afraid that if he was a good guy, they would sell no copies of the record. Was that Capitol Records who was behind that? There was no, <laughs> there was no capital put in that record. <laughs> hey, whoa, look at him. Still on the show here. This week. <laughs> Now, some some people have speculated, Brian, that uh, I'm the only guy who doesn't really put you over as has being great. In my in my intro, I just <laughs> I have say, not heard anyone speculate on that. Is that a real I, thing? Yeah, my mother. She, I was. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, "Is he annoyed with you?" And I said, "Why?" She goes, "Well, sometimes he cuts you off, and he's really rude." And I go, "No, I don't think so, Mom." She goes, "Well." But isn't he the great Brian Lass? I said, yeah. Well, your mom knows that. Wow, that's very impressive. Yeah, yeah, she, she, yeah. My mom is my my, my biggest fan. Hi, Mama Bowden. <laughs> yeah. Well, she. I wish I could say you did a good job raising your son, but hey, I can't. Hey, this is not Mama Cornette here. Come on that's now. That's true. That's true. Uh, my goodness. Uh, speaking of Cornette, well, <laughs> while we're talking about while we're talking about uh, Jerry Jarrett, and uh, he he goes so. This really means a lot to you, doesn't it, this, how this turns out? And I go, no, I, it does, Jerry, but really what I want is the truth. He goes, well, 
So part of the reason why you're having a hard time with this is because you saw him all over the magazine covers and you thought he was a big star. And I said, yeah, that's a part of it. He said, well, you and Cornette, how many how many Jim Cornettes and Scott Bowden's were actually out there in your estimation, fans in the Memphis area who were buying those magazines and so into it like you guys were? And I said, I would probably guess a very small number. And <laughs> without missing a beat, Jarrett goes, yeah, I would say less than half, <laughs> less than half of 1%. <laughs> Obviously, he came up with that in a very scientific manner. Oh, my gosh. But just like he goes, yeah, you guys were very special marks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Here's your next uh, book. Very yeah, special marks. <laughs> the story of the Memphis wrestling historians. Yes, yes, without a doubt. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think I've run my mouth uh, enough this week. Uh, <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter if you're not sick of hearing my opinion yet. Uh, at Trav Scott Bowden. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling. You can find the great Brian Last at Great Brian Last on Twitter. <laughs> For, <laughs> for the above average brian last this is scott bowden reminding you that kentucky fried wrestling is a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network we'll see you next week bye-bye everybody the announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station namely the promoters of championship wrestling